Welcome to Modern Ancestral Mamas, a podcast for mamas created by mamas. We discuss ancestral food, cooking, feeding our families, and holistic living with the everyday modern mom. We are Corey and Christine, two mamas on a mission to nourish our families holistically while keeping it real in today's crazy world. Follow us on this adventure and enjoy the stories and information we share. Today's episode is sponsored by the Nurtured Foundations online course. The Nurtured Foundations course is a podcast style course to teach parents how to start solids with their baby. Are you a parent with a child from zero to 24 months? Well, then this online course is for you. This is a comprehensive course that empowers parents to start solid foods in a confident and safe way and raise adventurous and healthy eaters from the start. We cover topics such as when to start solids, the most nutrient-dense foods to feed your babies, recipes, troubleshooting, how to prevent picky eating, and so much more. If you want information on this course, go to nourishthelittles.com and click on the link Nurtured Foundations online course. You can also find a link to the Nurtured Foundations online course on my Instagram bio. Click on the link and look for Nurtured Foundations online course. Hello, welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. This is Christine from Nourish the Littles and Tonight is kind of a weird night because I am recording solo with our guest tonight. Um, Unfortunately, Corey is going through some crazy storm right now in Georgia and her power is out and the show must go on. So we are recording without her. Uh, So you're just going to hear two voices tonight instead of three. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to today's episode. I'm really excited about it. We, this is a topic that I've recently begun diving deeper into since I befriended today's guest. Um, in fact, there's going to be an entire presentation on this particular subject at the conference this year. So if you're going to the Weston A. Price Conference, there will be a subject on fascia and natural movement. And our guest today is also a Weston A. Price chapter leader for the DFW Metroplex, and she's a friend of mine. I'm so blessed to know her and her husband, um, who have loved working with them since meeting them a few years ago. And normally Corey does our intros and our, um, our bios, but since she's not here, I'm going to go ahead and jump into it. So today's guest is Callie Johnson, and she is among few progressive practitioners blending movement work with manual therapy. She is a partner at Structural Elements in Texas where she works as a movement teacher and corrective and structural body worker. As a movement teacher, she is strongly interested in helping her students move with mindfulness, growing their kinesthetic awareness, and when she trains others, she focuses on restoring fascial pliability, resurrecting lost motor patterns, and grooving in new ones. Um, So Callie's going to explain what all of this means if it feels foreign to you. 
And, oh, I didn't mention that Structural Elements is in Dallas. So it's in the Louisville area. So if you're native to um, the DFW Metroplex, um, definitely check her out and check out Structural Elements. So without further ado, I want to invite Callie to the episode or to the show. (laughs) Say something, Callie. Thanks for having me. Okay. That's your cue, okay? You're supposed to say something. <laughs> no worries. Um, all right, Callie. So we normally start every episode with a question related to the topic of the show. And I couldn't decide if we were gonna I was gonna ask something about barefoot shoes or movement, but I went ahead and went the movement route. So I'm gonna ask a question and then we'll both answer it. And then we'll get into the, the subject and the topics that we're going to discuss. Okay, so since today we're going to be discussing feet and fascia and movement, I want to know what is your favorite way to exercise? I would have to say my favorite way to exercise is to dance. I'm a professional dancer, actually, and I grew up dancing. So I always love to turn on music, dance, dance with friends, just any type of movement to music, I'm all about. That's so cool. I wish that I could say I can dance, but I absolutely cannot <laughs> dance. <laughs> it's actually very embarrassing. Um, okay, my favorite way to exercise, I would have to say is I despise the gym and like traditional working out. I find it so boring. Um So I like to do any sort of movement outside. So whether that's hiking or rock climbing or playing on a playground or um, swimming, if I feel inclined to actually get into a pool or (laughs) body of water, Um, anything, yeah, anything like that. I feel like I'm like so out of like regular traditional working out. Actually, now that I think about it, I used to do Pilates back when I lived in Chicago and I loved Pilates, mm-hmm. but I haven't, I haven't found a good Pilates studio here in Dallas mm-hmm. yet. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, those, those are my favorite ways to exercise. Yeah, um, okay. Before we actually go into the subjects, Callie, can you give us a little bit of a background on you? So maybe tell us like how you got started into all of this. Um, yeah, give us your story a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I danced my whole life. I wanted to be a professional dancer and I ended up going to college at A&M and I studied dance science. So it was kind of a mixture of performing and learning about that and then also anatomy. So I learned, I got my degree in kinesiology and I learned about the body and just a very, um, kinesiological point of view, right? So very action origin insertion, just I thought I was going to do PT while also dancing. And in my college career, I learned about the fascia from um, my professors. And I was really interested in what that was. And I kind of got books, I studied more, there were some other dancers doing fascia work in the dance science world. So I was kind of drawn to that. And when I graduated, I realized I didn't really want to do PT school. I wanted to work with the fascia and 
learn what that was about. So I looked up um, practitioners that were doing anatomy trains, um, which is a style of structural integration. Structural integration is like a big umbrella and there's multiple brands of it, I guess you can say. So I looked up anatomy trains practitioners and I found a place in Louisville, Texas, Structural Elements, that was doing this type of work. And I reached out to Isaac, who um, started the business, and I just asked him to show me what he does. And he was teaching some classes, and I came into one of the classes, and it was amazing. And just what a body worker can see in your body, I was just blown away. Um, so I knew I wanted to learn that work and basically ever since I, um, just asked, um, Isaac, if I can just mentor or he can mentor me and teach me the work and he did. So that was about maybe four or five years ago from then. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've been ever since learning about the body and doing, I ended up going to massage school to get my license to touch in Texas. And then now I work as a body worker and a movement teacher. So, yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Out of curiosity, how was Isaac already into Weston A. Price and sort of that's how you learned about it? Or do you feel like the structural, like the body workers are also very holistically minded as well? Um, I would not say that a lot of body workers are maybe even aware of Weston A. Price. We definitely weren't. We only learned about the foundation a couple of years ago, as well as Isaac. So, I mean, there are so many holistic modalities that, you know, usually people that are drawn to body work are into, but um, yeah, not Weston A. Price at that time. So we discovered mm -hmm. that later. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know if maybe they sort of went hand in hand or... That's cool. So you learned about them um, at separate times. Yeah. Um, okay. And can you, because I think we're going to talk a little bit about MoveNat. Can you just explain a little bit? How did, um, so Callie's married to Zach and Zach is a MoveNat trainer, correct? Yep. Which we'll have to have him on at some point. Uh, maybe we'll have both of you guys on together. But um, talk a little bit about natural movement because we're going to discuss that in today's show as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So MoveNet is a system of movement. And um, my husband, Zach, he uh, studied anthropology in school. He's really interested in history. And he was always an athlete. So he has a huge movement background. And he just, you know, lifted. He did all kinds of movements, calisthenics, all this stuff. And just never really was super excited about anything until he found MoveNet. MoveNet is an ancestral movement practice. So basically, kind of like how Wesson Price looks at food, the Wesson Price Foundation looks at the ancestral ways that people ate. MoveNet looks at the ancestral ways that people moved. So being able to be in a deep squat, being able to hang and support your own body weight, being able to balance, being able to move through nature, all of that stuff is encapsulated in the MoveNet system. So that just really resonated with us and our business. So Zach um, ended up getting his level three certification and trains in MoveNet, and I have my level two certification. So we use MoveNet a lot with our clients, and that really goes well with the fascial body work that we do. And we'll probably talk about that more. 
as yeah. well. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. I, I think y'all's story is, is just so fun. Um, okay. It's possible the audience does not know what fascia even means. So can you explain what fascia is, please? Totally. Yeah. So the fascia of the body is basically a connective tissue matrix inside your body. And it is a system. So just like your digestive system, your nervous system, you have a fascial system. And not only does the fascia kind of compartmentalize and separate and organize structures like muscles, bones, organs, but it connects all of these things to each other. And ultimately it connects your body to your brain and it allows your brain to communicate to your body. So it is a connector, it's a divider, and it's a communicator, basically. This tissue in this web-like tissue in your body. Okay, so you're saying it's kind of like tissue. Fascia is like tissue? So, yeah, so some people will say connective tissue or fascia, or some people will say in the extracellular matrix or everything outside of the cells. But fascia is basically fibrous substance like collagen, elastin, okay. and watery substance like structured water or gel-like water in the body. Oh, fascinating. And it's all over the body, like you said, even in the brain. Yeah. So, you know, some in the fascia research world, right, there's debate on what is fascia. Some people say that everything outside of a cell is fascia. So all of the linings, all of the uh, membranes of the walls of the cells, all your blood vessels, all your nerve, like wrappings, all of the membrane stuff, all of, you know, a lot of the times when people say fascia, they think about, you know, the plantar fascia or the IT band is like a fascial sheath. So the fascia can be sheath-like. The fascia can also be um, kind of like between layers. So if you have two muscles side by side, in between those muscles is fascia. And in investing within the muscle is fascia surrounded by every single muscle fiber. So mm -hmm. there's lots of different kinds of fascia. But basically, it's all the tissue in your body. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. And how can we, okay, so how is fascial work, so integrative fascial work, different than something like chiropractic work or osteopathic work, for example? Mm. Yeah, so the goals of a structural integrator is to help the body find a better relationship with gravity. So that is similar to other modalities and other goals, but how a structural integrator would do that is to either um, lengthen, broaden, or differentiate fascia. So fascia could be either too long or locked long and needs to be broadened. It can be too short and needs to be lengthened, or it's all glommed together, like one big soupy mess, and it needs to be kind of organized and separated. So a fascial body worker or a structural integrator will do hands-on manual work, working on the lines. So, um, yeah, we would get someone on the table. We would get someone sitting on the bench. We might even have someone moving around and working on their tissue and trying to find that 
um, better relationship with gravity. Okay. And chiropractic work is more working specifically with like the joints and the bones and stuff. Is that, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Same goals, different what they would work with. So there's many different types of chiropractors, right? So, but generally a chiropractor would work, would be very interested in joints and bones and subluxations and correcting those and a lot of work in the vertebrae. And a fascial body worker or a structural integrator would be interested in those things too, but we would have not just work in the deepest layer in the bone layer, we would work in some of the superficial layers mm-hmm. to balance those. So maybe, for example, there might be a rotation in a vertebrae and, you know, the vertebrae is rotated. You can just pop that right back in and then off, off you go. Then, you know, the next week, your vertebrae is out again, you know, you have that rotation again. So what a structural integrator would do is look at the line of fascia that's pulling that vertebrae into a rotation and Mm. lengthen it or shorten it or whatever it needs to help get the joint into a better relationship. So chiropractic work and structural integration work really do go well together. Um, Mm. um, How they achieve the goals are different. So both can be useful. I think, um, I mean, I'm obviously biased towards body work. For sure. Like you, For so. sure. I love it. Um, no, honestly, I'm pretty biased too. Since I found uh, you and structural elements, I have almost felt like it's like the holy grail of body work. Um, mm. I don't, it, this is just my own personal biased opinion, folks, but <laughs> I, I think it is the most perfect way to do body work on like on the human body. I I feel like it, it addresses all of the issues that can go wrong, um, in a body. Mm -hmm. And for, for those that have never had this kind of work done, I have been to see Callie and Zach and, uh, basically what you're doing is you're laying on a massage table and it's kind of like a massage. Um, but there's, like she said, there's some movement um, and she's working on targeted areas, whatever you come in and need work on. Um, and it almost feels like, what would you say, like rubbing or actually the fascinating, this is really interesting and maybe Callie can explain a little bit more about it. But in multiple sessions that I've had with her, she as she's working through the fascia, she will say something along the lines of, I'm sorry if it feels like I'm digging my nails into you. I'm actually not, you know, you can look at my nails. They're very short. I don't have any nails. Um, This is just what the fascial work feels like. And it feels exactly like someone is just like, you know, uh, with their nails scratching you down um, on your arm, for example, or your leg. (laughs) But but yeah, she has very short nails. It's not like she has long nails or anything. So I, I find that so interesting when you're doing the fascial work that that's the sensation that you feel. Do you know like why that is? I've never mm-hmm. asked you this. Yeah. So um, the fascia holds uh, muscles basically. So all your muscles are surrounded by fascia and fascia is invested into the muscles and will talk about the importance of that later but 
your um, different bags of fascia, basically. You want everything to be really slidey and really glidey, right? You want your hamstrings to be sliding relative to your quads and relative to your adductors, right? You want all of these muscles to be really um, pliable, just like a little kid. You know, you watch a little kid move and they're bouncy and they're flexible and, you know, we lose that with age. So we're losing the pliability in our fascia. So places in our bodies that those um, compartments of fascia are too stuck together. So if your, you know, hamstring, one of your hamstrings is too stuck together with another one of your hamstrings, the fascia will become adhered together. So when fascia is unhydrated, it kind of is has the consistency of felt. So if you think about two pieces of felt stuck together, it's like they don't have a lot of slide. They're just kind of like Velcro almost. So we get in there with bodywork to places that are very undifferentiated. So they're kind of that felty stuck together. And we work to separate those um, connections that are too connected. And sometimes that will feel like fingernaily. Sometimes people feel like it is kind of a, like an Indian rope burn type of feeling, um, which this makes it sound really painful and bad, but it's really not. It kind of feels useful and helpful. Um, and what we're doing is we're helping your body realize, hey, you know, there's not one big glob here. There's actually two. So you're, you know, through the work and through the process, your brain's like, oh yeah, you know, there's two muscles here. I'm going to, you know, separate those. And now my brain understands there's two muscles. I can use two different muscles for two different things and you move better and you feel better. So that's kind of that, that feeling will come every now and then when places are too undifferentiated. Yeah, that makes sense. You, okay. So you've, I, th I feel like you've touched on this a little bit, but what would you say is healthy fascia? Like what do we want our fascia to feel like or to be like? Yeah. So if someone has healthy fascia, it feels um, hydrated and it almost is kind of like, think about a sponge. So if a sponge is really dry and brittle, it breaks easily. It doesn't have pliability. It just kind of is hard and solid. When you fill the sponge with water, it becomes soft and you can kind of wring it out, you know, spread it out, squish it in. You can move it in all different ways. So our fascia is kind of like that. We want our fascia to be really hydrated and mushy and um, bouncy and be able to conduct, um, elasticity and, um, yeah, it should be almost like a little kid, you know, you see a little kid and they're bouncy and they're running around versus thinking about like a 99 year old man who's kind of shuffling along. It just seems the movement quality is completely different. Mm. So that would be an example of hydrated, healthy fascia versus unhealthy fascia. This is kind of maybe an exaggeration, but I think of Elastigirl in The Incredibles. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen that cartoon yeah. or not, but yeah, she's just like super, super stretchy and, you know, like flexible. And I don't know if that's the same thing, but that's what it makes me think of. Yeah. Um, the This idea that kids, well, first of all, they have perfect posture, perfect movement, um, and it sounds like they have wonderful fascia as well. I think it's fascinating how we can learn from them 
and try to move more like them. It's, you know, if you actually sit and watch your, if you have any kids, if you sit and watch your kids for a day, you will notice that they are rarely still. Mm. They're moving all day, all day. They, they almost never stop moving. It's so, like when you actually pay attention to it, it's kind of mind blowing how much they move. I, I want to say in comparison to, you know, us as adults, um, I don't think we move half as much as kids do just on a daily basis. So, yeah, our, our culture is very sedentary. And, you know, if you're interested in that topic, Katie Bowman actually talks a lot about that and how we're really kind of, um, battling this sedentary culture, right? You don't even need to stand up from your couch to have food delivered to you, you know, like, (laughs) which, you know, movement has become also a very counterculture thing because the culture is very sedentary, very seat dependent. So it's kind of interesting to think about. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so true. I, I'm not sure that we're going to bring it up later in the episode. So I want to talk about it now because you touched on it a little bit and I've heard you talk about this in our sessions as well. This idea of brain mapping and why that's important for the brain, the body, how that can play into things like uh, sensory processing disorders or um, yeah, why, why does fascia help the brain and sensorial uh, issues, let's say. Mm. So our fascia is actually our largest sense organ. So most of our sensory receptors in our body is housed in the fascia tissue. So our ability to know where our body is in space or our proprioception depends on the organization of our fascia. The ability for us to know what is happening inside our body, you know, does your tummy hurt? You know, do you feel like you have a sore throat? All of that interoception and all of those skills are based on your fascia and how hydrated they are. So, and yeah, hydrated and how differentiated. So with the brain mapping that comes in, your brain is very aware of everything in your body until it's not, right? So ideally your brain has a, has a nice map a nice checklist of everything going on places that get disorganized or places if you've had an injury or you have scar tissue in an area that might be an area that your brain has kind of shut off temporarily right or you know if you sit all day and your only surface you're coming into contact with is your chair your brain doesn't need that much sensory information there you're just getting one input right so it kind of you know shuts them off so yeah, our fascia, that whole system and that whole communication with the outside world and with our inside world is from the fascia. So, wow. I feel I like that's I so your cool. question, I feel like I just Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thinking so I'm thinking of kids with maybe some sensory sensory issues. They would benefit from fascial work because what you're saying is this body work will help create that organizational map in their brain. And then I'm imagining them like sort of calming down, like the brain saying, Oh, okay. I know where I am in space. 
Mm. Now I don't need to be so hypersensitive or um, like kids that need the sensorial input. So Mm. whether that's because um, they're stimming or, um, you know, moving around constantly or they need the, the deep pressure in the arms and stuff like that, would you say that that's because their brain map is essentially lost or confused maybe? Yeah, totally. And your brain, knowing where you are at in space makes you feel safe. You know, being able to, you know, touch the ground when you walk, being able to, you know, feel all of those things, your brain's like, okay, we're good. We're all safe. If those things are disorganized or unavailable, you're, it's like you're walking into a dark room that you don't know and you're completely blindfolded. You know, it's like, where am I? I'm freaking out because I don't have control. I don't know where I am. So yeah, with any kind of sensory processing thing, all of that body work would be, I would say the first thing that you should try just to get the brain and the body communicating with each other and feeling more in control. And actually there's whole modalities that work specifically with that. I mean, if you're interested in, um, looking into that further, Feldenkrais has a whole system that he would work with kids that were told that they would never be able to walk or, you know, they would never be able to talk. And he would do body work with them, very simple stuff, helping their brain map out their body and they would make full recoveries. And all of that stuff is very, very powerful work. This is so cool. How do you say his name again? Felden what? Feldenkrais. Oh, whoa. Is it all one word? Yeah. F-E-L-D-E-N-K-R-A-I-S. K-R or yeah, A-U-S maybe. or Yeah. Okay. I'll look it up and it'll be in the show notes for sure. I just wanted a general idea of how to spell it so I know um, where to look for it online. Wow. That is really, really fascinating. Oh my gosh. This is the kind of stuff that um, I feel like I could just like deep dive even further. But um, I know that probably a lot of people are interested in fascia and tongue ties. That is such a hot topic in today's world where, oh, I don't know. I feel like every single friend I know has said that their baby has a tongue tie. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they are being overdiagnosed, I don't know, or it's just a, another chronic issue due to nutrient deficiencies maybe in today's society. Um, maybe it's a combination of both, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about tongue ties and what you know about them and how fascia can help. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, we've seen a lot of that in the past couple of years and, um, yeah, it's interesting. So painting kind of a landscape for the tongue tie conversation, um, there's a quote Um, And it goes, the shapes you make, make your shape. So the shapes that you occupy throughout your day, the shapes that you make will form your shape. Your your fascia will help you make those shapes easier. Um, So thinking about a baby, right? The shape that they just spent nine months in is a curled up fetal position. So With that shape, it kind of makes sense. The front of their body is short. So their superficial front line of fascia, their deep front line are in a shortened position because they're curled up 
and the back of their body from the top of their forehead all the way down their spine, all the way down to their feet is in a long position because they're, you know, that part is what is being stretched. So when a baby is born, and actually throughout the first year of life, what you watch a baby do as it grows is you basically watch it unfurl, right? You watch it going from this little shortened in the front, you know, human to a, you know, walking and being straight up and down, right? So throughout the development, they, you know, grow, have more tone in the back of their superficial back line and they get stretched in the front line. So a newborn baby, (laughs) the top of their deep front line is their tongue. So the tongue actually connects. This is how the fascia connects things, right? So your tongue connects into all of the muscles in your throat, your voice box, your esophagus. It keeps going down. It attaches into the lungs, into the heart, into the diaphragm. All of these things are continuous. There's no division. They just all go together from your diaphragm. Yeah. Gets into the hip flexors, into the adductors or your inner thighs, and then down into the feet. So when we're talking about a tongue tie, it's we can see the little frenulum right under the tongue. So it seems like it's this superficial accessible piece of tissue that we can just cut off and there's no consequences, right? But it's connected all the way down to the heart, lungs, diaphragm, hip flexors, toes. So looking at that, it kind of, from a fascial perspective, you know, like I said, there's consequences to, you know, making cuts and things and where something might be short, which kind of makes sense. It's been short, you know, it's short from being in the womb for nine months. It will unfurl and it will stretch out as it should throughout the first year of life, usually. Mm. So yeah, body work, if, you know, hips, feet, legs, torso, I would work all of that, you know, in the baby, actually working on the baby first before even considering taking, you know, a scalpel to their, the top of their deep front line, which is a very important line, you know? Oh my gosh. Wow. I, several months ago, I listened to a podcast episode with Corey Malloy and I can't remember her podcast host, but they had on an incredible body worker mm-hmm. who's in Hawaii, so not really accessible to um, those of us on the mainland. But she talked about how detrimental it was emotionally to actually do the tongue tie cut yeah. and how it, for many, many babies, it created a lot of issues and it was more harmful than helpful. And, mm. and this is not to, by any means, shame anyone who has had to go down that path. It, it was, it's just a different perspective of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I had never considered before, but basically she talked about how it is incredibly important to do the body work before even considering actually, like you said, taking a scalpel to one of the most important systems, um, in the body and that she only recommended it for absolute extreme cases. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I do know that for some, uh, parents, 
they can't properly breastfeed if the tongue tie is too tight. And I think that's where it gets to be a really difficult conversation as a mother where you're desperately trying to feed your child and you can't because your child is not latching properly. And so they're not getting enough milk. And I'm wondering if something like structural therapy can work quickly enough to help a baby get those vital nutrients that they need. Do you know by any chance? Yeah. So, um, with the tongue tie, so it's not, there is no, uh, standard, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like if the the frenulum is like two millimeters, it should be cut, but if it's three, it's okay. You know, there's no standard. So how they diagnose it is, you know, secondary things, right? Is there pain with breastfeeding? Is, is the baby colicky? You know, all of these other things that support that diagnosis. So, Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you a story about actually multiple mothers that we've seen in the past couple years coming in with, you know, they're worried about their baby maybe having a tongue tie because of the pain when breastfeeding and they're not sure about the latch. They're not sure all the stuff. And actually in all of those cases, we have done body work on the mother, specifically the pec tissue, the tissue at the front of the chest, shoulders, any of the um, nerves that actually innervate the nipple mm. are under that fascia. So worked on the mother's shoulders, arms, that whole area, and pain with breastfeeding went away completely. With multiple. What? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's insane. So I would, I would just encourage anyone that's dealing with that pain with breastfeeding or any type of thing like that, get body work on yourself before um, – doing anything because it might be as simple as, you know, you, you know, you just had a baby, you've been hunched over your baby trying to take care of them Mm -hmm. and your pecs are extremely tight and cutting off, um, the flow of the nerves that are going to the nipple or, you know, the flow of there's lots of ducts, there's lots of, Mm you know, nerves, there's lots of vessels and you want all of those to be open so you can breastfeed with ease. So I would say definitely, get that checked out. And if, even if you don't have anyone around you, make sure that you are even throughout your pregnancy. And after you have your baby reaching your arms up over your head, find something to hang on, make sure that your arms are not always in the same shape. You're repeating the same shapes over and over. Change the position you're breastfeeding in, you know, lay down, you know, move your baby around in different positions and help that all of that stay hydrated. Oh, wow. This is, this is fascinating and so helpful. Um, thank you for sharing that. So you talked about how the baby is sort of folded down, um, in the fetal position. And part of that first year, it's the baby unfolding. And so I think this moves perfectly into the discussion of crawling and talking about the importance of crawling. Um, and I have an, I have a whole story on that, which, you know, I won't share, um, for the sake of time and boring our audience. But I, after my first kind of became obsessed with making sure that my babies crawled and n- like knowing the importance of crawling and tummy time. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So there's actually, um, 
eight, I'm pretty sure, phases that a baby goes through in the first year of development. I mean, there's a lot more than this, and people get very in-depth into teaching this. But basically, one of the stages is cross-lateral movement or cross-body. So moving your right arm and your left leg at the same time. And this is so important in setting up a proper gait pattern. Because when you walk as an adult, you should swing your right arm forward as your left leg is stepping forward and then reverse. So opposite arm leg swing. Mm. And, you know, actually a lot of people that have do not have efficient gait patterns, you know, you talk to them and they did not crawl as a baby or they crawled for a very short amount of time. So that connection in your brain is not developed and the gait is affected for the rest of their adult life. So crawling sets us up for how to walk. And if a baby is not seeming interested in crawling, I would definitely get yourself on the floor and encourage your baby to crawl as much as they can. Yeah. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, also, if you're like listening to this and you're thinking, oh, my baby's four, they didn't crawl. What? Um, How children play and letting a child move have a full natural movement practice, like letting them play on the floor, letting them play in nature, they will pick up those movements. So if if you're thinking about, oh no, they skipped this or they didn't spend three months in this stage, you know, as they're playing and as they're growing, they just naturally will, right? They'll, They'll be playing with their Legos and then they'll crawl across the floor to get their other Lego, you know? So those movements will be folded in if they're allowed that free play, that, you know, nature time, that unrestricted, you know, education and play time, which I know you talk, you have a podcast about uh, education, uh, more podcasts on education. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Um, Yeah. And I want to add too, this is something that as a parent, you can also do with your child. So if you've got the older child who never crawled as a baby, you can turn it into games. So um, you can, <laughs> my kids now play rodeo. So one will get on top of the other and then they'll like pretend they're barrel racing or they're bucking Broncos or something. So there, there's one child that's on the floor and they're crawling um, and you can make crawl races. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to integrate crawling into play throughout the day. But so uh, I'll just like insert this real quick, but because I knew that crawling was so important and I actually had my oldest only crawled for like a month. He never crawled. He just went straight to walking. And this was something that I was fully aware was going to affect him later. I found a program here in Dallas um, and he does it virtually. So you don't, you don't, if you don't live in um, the DFW Metroplex, you can still do this program. It's called Sharper Minds. And one of the detriments to not crawling is brain integration. And when both hemispheres of the brain are not properly integrated, then there's issues with memory. There's issues with um, reading, with uh, cognitive function, emotional fun- uh, abilities, like all of these things. It's all affected. And so one of the things that this program emphasizes is brain integration. And the main form that they do that is through what they call cross-crawl marching, which is crawling, but standing up. So it's the exact same thing as if you were on all fours, 
but you're standing up while you're doing it and you're doing that bilateral movement while let's say you're saying the alphabet or you're reciting uh, multiplication tables or um, spelling words and it helps with memorization um, at the same time while integrating the brain. It's so fascinating. My son has been going through it for the past two years. I can't recommend it enough. And um, it is said to help with things like dyslexia and ADD and ADHD. Um, and it all helps with like brain integration and stuff like that. But anyway, the whole reason why I did it was because he didn't crawl. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need something that's going to address the fact that he didn't crawl. Um, okay, so that's really long winded about the crawling thing. But I did want to ask one more thing about the crawling is, okay, if your child is, is, you know, not crawling, do you know, is there anything that we can do to help them crawl? Or like the parent that's like, well, my child doesn't want to, they're just like, I don't know, let's say they're, they're rolling or they're bottom scooting. Like, why do you think, okay, no, here's my question for real. Why do you think we have so many kids nowadays that aren't crawling? Because I know, I feel like I see more kids that are not crawling than I see kids that are crawling. Hmm. Just like thinking generally of people that I know. And I wonder why that is. And maybe there's no answer to this. I'm just wondering. Do you have any anecdotal thoughts or evidence? Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know one thing in particular. I would I would guess that so the movements that a child goes through um in their first year of life are a little bit um like they add on to each other. So the first thing that a baby does is, you know, breathe. Obviously. So that's they take their first breath. And then they're stimulated by like tactile. So they are feeling things, they're touching things, they're feeling things with their mouth, they're putting things in their mouth, right? And then it goes into, you know, head tail, they start learning how to lift their head, then it starts with, you know, core distal, they're reaching their arms away from their body. And these things kind of build onto each other and they build your brain to like unlock the next skill. And there is a little bit of, you know, um, I guess... I mean, it's not like a baby turns two months and then all of a sudden they don't do any core distal movement, right? It, it is continuous. But um, I think sometimes if some of these early movements were not fully integrated, um, the next ones can't really be. So it's like you kind of have a traffic jam. Also, another thing is uh, neural reflexes. So throughout these, I mean, we're talking about kind of gross motor movement patterns, but there's a deeper, you know, neural reflex pattern that happens. And if a baby's reflexes are not integrated, then they'll have stuff hanging out, right? So they can't really get to the next level of movement because their, you know, their reflexes haven't been integrated. And I think a lot of those things have to do with uh, one birth trauma, right? Like where are they being born? What interventions were happening throughout their birth process? And maybe those, you know, those, uh, reflexes were not able to be integrated because of disruptions in that process or how much they're able to move as a baby. So that might sound silly because, you know, babies don't move. They're just laying there, right? But, you know, you see so much nowadays of, um, I don't know if there's a word for this. I call it kind of like container living, right? Mm-hmm. So you put your baby in their car seat container and then you put them in their little like 
while you're getting ready, they have a little seat that they go in and then you put them in the stroller and then they're in the same position every single minute of the day. And then they're not able to explore that, you know, those baby movements that help build them up to crawling. So the crawling, I would just, you know, wonder how much is the baby living in a container? Kind of like the quote, the shapes we make, make our shape. What shape are you putting your baby in for the most of its life? Oh, wow. That's so, that's really impactful because yeah, I, so you're saying it's best to have babies essentially either lay flat as much as possible so that they can move or lay on their stomach as well. Like, are, do you, are you a proponent of tummy time or what do you think about that? So with tummy time, actually, um, I think that tummy time is something that has been put in place because of this container problem. So for example, when you have a newborn baby, everyone, you know, baby carries or where's the wraps or where's the, you know, the little basically car seats in the backpack type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the baby is not supporting its own weight ever, right? It's, it's passive. So the baby doesn't really have to, you know, if you're holding a baby without any type of support, it's first of all hard because you're holding this baby. And, but even at a little, a little young age, the baby is experimenting. So if you're holding a newborn, the baby's, you know, looking at the sound, picking up its head for a second and then putting it back down. So the baby's doing like very, I'm talking like, you know, weeks old baby is doing these tiny little head movements. You know, they're learning that over time if they're not in a carrier. You know, you hold them on this side, they turn their head to this way. You hold them on the other side, they turn their head because they want to see what's going on. So they're doing these tiny micro head movements over the first couple weeks of their life. And then, oh, their superficial back line, you know, is strong enough to hold up their head more easily. So that kind of happens naturally if you are not putting your baby in a container. If they're in the passive container, they're not lifting their head because they're just chilling. They're in their hammock, you know? They're falling asleep and they don't want to lift their head. So then you get to a point, it's like, oh no, my baby should be lifting their head, but they've not practiced that at all, you know? So now we have to kind of cram it. So let's do tummy time so they can get practice lifting up their head. But, you know, that's really tiring, so we'll take a break from that. And it's like you're putting your baby through an exercise routine or an Mm -hmm. exercise regimen when, you know, if they could have these opportunities to practice, even from a tiny, tiny age, they can slowly grow that strength incrementally, and then it's no big deal by the time they're, you know, whatever age they can hold up their head. Yeah. This is – Maybe I don't want to use the word extreme, but it's a different perspective. Um, so in the respectful parenting world with um, there's something called Rye resources for infant education started by a woman named Magda Gerber. And she emphasizes how babies don't need to do tummy time and babies develop perfectly on their own when given the opportunity. And so just leaving them on the, on the floor Mm -hmm. independently to just explore on their back. 
And if you do that, eventually the baby intrinsically will learn how to flip over to their tummy and they themselves will get over onto their tummy when they're ready and when they want to. Um, I admit I didn't follow this personally, but I was very aware of it. And so I respect the fact that, you know, their babies have the ca- the capacity to do that if given the opportunity. Mm. Um, so just throwing that out there for if anyone's interested in looking looking into that a little bit more. But we've talked a lot about babies and I feel like we need to move on to feet. Um, Cause I really, this, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> We're like going way off topic. Um, but I want you to talk a little bit about, let's shift over, talk about feet. Why are feet important in relation to the health of our body? Let's, let's shift gears and yeah. Talk about feet. Okay. So, we can kind of even segue this from the baby talk because this is kind of relevant in babies. Yeah, so as babies true. develop, um, actually the foot is not fully formed until an adult. So your babies and your child's feet are still growing and still forming bones until they're like 18. Oh, whoa. I did not know that. Yeah. It's crazy. Really cool. So. The feet are very important because all of the fascial lines of the body go to the feet and are in the feet, right? Our Most of our sensory receptors, actually a ton of our sensory receptors are in the bottom of the feet. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about of how the brain feels safe. Your brain feels safe when you know where you are. Your feet give you a lot of information about where you are because of all of the sensory receptors. So feeling the ground that you're walking on helps you feel more grounded in your mind. So we just, we go through our first, you know, through our childhood, our feet are growing, our feet are moving in all different shapes. And once we get to an adult, what ideally we would like to see is feet that can um, move in all different angles. So you have 26 bones in each foot and you have 33 joints in each foot. So you have a huge potential for movement. And this is really useful for us because if you're walking over pebbles or you're walking over twigs, you're walking in nature, your foot might have to just shift the tiniest amount to accommodate those uneven surfaces. So for most people, you know, we've been put putting our feet in what I call sensory deprivation chambers our whole life. So one, we have decreased our sensory receptors because your brain doesn't want to know one surface. It's getting bored. So it'll just turn those off. Number two, the movement of the joints and the pliability of the fascia decreases because um, you've outsourced the movement that your foot should be making to a sensory deprivation chamber or shoe. (laughs) And yeah, I think there was only two things there. I didn't finish with a nice even three, but those two things are very important. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. So you talked about the, the sensory feeling in your foot and you mentioned something about, oh, I can't remember, but how, how does this, how does something like plantar fasciitis how is that related to the fascia? And actually for, for people who don't know what that is, can you just 
explain what that is real quick? Yeah. So plantar fasciitis, plantar is talking about the location. So the bottom of your foot is the plantar surface of your foot where you're standing on the ground. And fasciitis, the suffix itis means inflammation, basically. And so what that word means is inflammation of the fascia or the sheath of tissue at the bottom of your foot. And inflammation in our work, basically inflammation means that an area of the body or multiple areas of the body have been moving in the same way over and over and over. So that creates, um, first of all, dryness. So it you know, the fascia is not pliable and spongy, it becomes dry because you just keep wringing it out the same way, not refilling it with water. It gets dry and the friction it's creating is making heat. And heat is basically what is inflammation. So with any itises that you find in your body, the reason for it is you're moving in the same way too much. You need to vary your movement to help other joints and other angles of the fascia take the brunt of the work. So not just one part is doing that. Wait, I just had a light bulb. You said if with any of the itises, like arthritis? Yeah. So arthritis, arth means arthro means joint, right? So joint and then itis inflammation. So if a joint is moving in the same, it's the same thing with plantar fasciitis, but, um, you know, it's in a joint. So your joint is moving the same way over and over and over. It's going to create the friction and then you're going to have inflammation and pain. So this idea of giving yourself a steroid shot, what does that do? That removes the inflammation. It obviously is just a band-aid that doesn't get to the root cause. Mm-hmm. So if someone has arthritis in their wrist, you're saying that that's because they're moving their wrist in the exact same way multiple times throughout the day. Yeah. So they're just, you know, creating friction and creating heat in the same area. So the inflammation is the response and it's your body trying to, you know, or it's your body responding to the movement that you're doing. So getting a steroid shot, which is, you know, supposedly, right, reducing inflammation Mm -hmm. is just completely, you know, it doesn't even make sense because if the inflammation is there because of a movement pattern, then how is injecting, I would say, poison into your body going to help, right? (laughs) Like that doesn't even make sense. And most of the time it actually doesn't help. I see people that, have gone down that route. And actually we see a lot of people that the story goes, I've gotten a steroid shot and it's worn off and I don't know what else to do. So I'm here. So that is, yeah, not really any type of solution, I would say. Wow. So then they need to move it in a different way. So would that be, it almost sounds like PT a little bit, like Okay, so if I'm constantly moving my wrist, I I don't know, I'm just going to make it up like to the right. Now I need to practice moving it to the left. Like that sounds like a PT exercise or something. So how does the fascia involved in that? Yeah, maybe it would be um, easier to think about the feet, right? So back to the feet example, if you're always walking on the same surfaces, 
um, surfaces that are not varied in texture. They're the same, like there's flat cement. If you're walking in the same shoes and you've been walking this way for 25 years, you know, you have a very repetitive pattern that has been grooved into your brain and grooved into your joints and your tissues. So it's maybe, especially with people that have been dealing with, you know, big itises, right? Arthritis, plantar fasciitis. It might, it might not just be as simple as just, you know, moving in a little bit different every now and then, because if you have inflammation, that pattern has been there for a long time. And that's, you know, in your feet, right? Walking, how many steps are you taking a day? How many times are you rehearsing that movement? Well, you're going to have to do at least that amount of time to get back to it. And body work kind of helps uh, jumpstart that process, right? It helps kind of guide your body and say, oh, you know, you've been doing this pattern for a really long time. Okay, we're going to lengthen all of this and give you a new idea. Okay, play with this for a little bit. And then your brain is like, oh, this is all a different length. I like this length. And that's why body work can be a little bit more sp uh, speed up the process a little bit than just you being like, oh, great. Now I need to walk a different way for the next 20 years to reverse this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about the walking on the same surface and, oh my gosh, what was that fun term you used? Con um, restrictive chambers. What did you say? Oh, sensory deprivation chambers. Sensory. Okay, folks. Callie is calling shoes sensory deprivation chambers in case that wasn't clear. Um, and this is a fun story between Callie and I, but I have a terrible, terrible shoe habit and none of my shoes are Cali approved. <laughs> hey, one hand. This is true. This is true. Actually, I have two pairs now. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've got two pairs of barefoot shoes. And I am slowly, very slowly trying to um, switch them out. The problem is a lot of barefoot shoes aren't as cute as my <laughs> conventional shoes. <laughs> Um, but actually I'm, I'm going to get a pair of earth runners this summer. So then I'll have three pairs of barefoot shoes. Ooh, if you get a pair uh -huh. of earth runners, I have a discount code. <gasps> oh, perfect. Or if yeah. you just want to get the best shoes ever <laughs> and the discount code is dance science approved. If you want 10% off. Wait. Okay. So I'm putting this in the show notes, earth runners. And what's the discount code? 10% off. But what's the, what do we have to put in the coupon oh, box or whatever? Dance Science Approved. Dance Science Approved. Okay, folks, that's going into the show notes. Um, great. Yeah, I wanted some earth runners that had leather straps. And I guess a few years ago they did make them, but they don't make them anymore. Um, so, but it's okay. I think that maybe the cloth is easier to clean. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but can you talk a little bit about barefoot shoes and why those are important? Yeah. So barefoot shoes have three qualifications basically, and this is all important to your gait. So the first qualification is the toe box is wide. So when you're wearing shoes, you don't want your toes to be all smushed together, right? You want space because actually every time you step, your foot widens and your foot lengthens as part of the gait cycle. 
you're a very little amount, but if your shoes are restricting you, you're just not going to do that movement. And then it's going to be kind of a learned disuse thing over time. So you're going to learn not to do that anymore. So wide toe box, your toes should be able to spread out. Number two is it is a zero drop. So from your toes to your heel, it's the same height from the ground. And you know, a lot of, sometimes people will say, oh yeah, I don't wear high heels. I just wear flats or I just wear tennis shoes. And, but you know, you look at tennis shoes and you look at flats and they actually all have a bit of a heel. So your foot is in a downward slope basically, or almost like you're standing on your tiptoes just a little bit with every step you're taking. So zero drop is very important because you know, a side note on that, if you're always just standing on your tiptoes just a little bit, what's going to happen in the back of your leg or your superficial back line is your calves will be in a shortened position. So if you're standing up, if you're lifting your heels up off the ground, your calves are shortening. So if you're repeating that movement, shortening your calves with every pair of shoes you wear and every step you take, your brain's going to be like, well, she's always shortening her calves. So we're going to just cut the length off because she wants them short anyway. So let's keep them short. And you'll slowly get shorter and shorter in your calves. Then that will translate up to your hamstrings. Same thing, you know, up the superficial back line. Anyways, that was a little bit of a side note, but zero drop, important. The last uh, qualification of barefoot shoes is having a flexible sole. So you want your foot, just like I was saying how the foot, you know, you want your 33 joints in each foot to be able to move and to um, change when stepping over surfaces. You want your feet to mold to whatever surface you're stepping on. So you want your shoe to be able to do that too. So your foot can um, react to the environment. If you're walking over a surface that's curved, you want your foot to kind of curve so you can balance on it better. So wide toe box, zero drop, and flexible sole, being able to twist it and bend it like your foot can move. What about the people that say, but I need arch support. I have to have a shoe with arch support. Mm. Yeah. Lots of people that I work with are saying that to me at first. So what an, what arch support does basically is you are outsourcing the movement that your foot should be doing to a piece of technology, which is the arch support, right? So your arch should be able to drop down towards the floor and then lift up towards the ceiling. Every step you take should be, I call the arch is kind of like trampolines at the bottom of your foot. So when you walk, your arch should drop and then come back up, kind of like a trampoline. Every step should kind of be a bounce. And traditional arch supports kind of brace your foot so the arch isn't able to drop and lift. So sometimes that may be necessary if someone has, if someone really, really needs support in that area, but with the intention of getting rid of it. So if, if you break your arm, right, you get a cast on your arm, and then you just wear the cast the rest of your life, right? So <laughs> over time, your arm is not going to function like an arm anymore because it's used to the cast. So if you are, you know, 
in feel like you need to be in arch supports or even if you are wearing shoes and you're like I can't go barefoot you know I would say note notice or recognize your the technology that you're using arch supports cushiony shoes as you know a cast and you want to slowly take that support away so you can learn how to support yourself so I'm not saying you know switch tomorrow all your shoes out of your closet and buy a bunch of earth runners and <laughs> call it a day. I would say just, you know, if you're a shoe wearer, <laughs> then maybe just see, um, can you take your shoes off in your house? Can you, if you're already, you know, barefoot in your house all the time, can you go for a walk around your neighborhood and not wear shoes or go outside in your yard and walk around without shoes and just slowly increase your capacity to, um, let your foot move over time and then your feet will become stronger and then you won't have to depend on other things to move your body. Your body will just move itself. And so I'm guessing you're a proponent of letting babies go barefoot as much as possible and not putting them in restrictive shoes. Totally. I mean, even like those little, uh, like footy pajamas, right? I know they're so adorable and so cute, but your baby's developing their sensory receptors at the bottom of their feet. So they need their feet to be able, I mean, just imagine if you just, you know, tomorrow you're just going to wear mittens all day, right? Not the ones with the fingers, the ones that your fingers are together, right? And then it's like, you can't feel things. You can't pick up things. And that's especially detrimental in a baby when they're making these connections and they're growing their you know bodies and they need that information it's very vital so yeah I would not put babies in shoes and I would not even put babies in like socks or footies yeah I um so (laughs) I mean there's been multiple times where we've gone out somewhere I don't know maybe to the grocery store or something and even my older kids have just, they've gotten in the car and they don't have shoes on and they'll get to the grocery, the, the grocery store and they'll be like, I forgot my shoes. And honestly, it doesn't bother me one bit. And I'm just kind of like, okay, so it looks like you're walking to the store without shoes then. Like, you know, there's nothing I can do. Um, and I think it's kind of funny <laughs> that oftentimes in certain, certain situations, my kids will just be barefoot and it's like, well, you know, oh, well. you'll be fine. It's good for your feet. (laughs) I've actually Um, done that multiple times because I don't wear shoes at work. So I just will jump in the car without shoes, drive, and then have to go into the post office or something and just be like, oh, hope no one yells at me here. I'm just walking in without shoes, just running into the grocery store and no one's said anything so far. So (laughs) yeah, no, we, we haven't had anyone make a comment. I feel like maybe with kids, it's a little more forgivable, but maybe with an adult, they might be like, what, what is that person doing? (laughs) Um, but okay. Talk about bunions because I feel like that's another hot topic when it comes to feet and yeah. What, what do you think are the cause of bunions and how can we help, uh, fix those, I guess. So wrapping around all your bones is actually a skin layer or it's called the periosteum or the fascia surrounding the bones. 
So whenever there is a shortening in the outside of the foot, like the your medial or the inside of your foot, I guess would be a better way to say it, and there's pooling going on, what's happening is the shortening of the fascia is pulling on this little periosteum of the bone, pulling on the skin of the bone and pulling it away from the bone. So that leaves a space. And your body does not like spaces. You know, you do not want to walk around with space. So what will happen is they'll be, um, they're called osteoblasts. And basically these um, little things in your body, these uh, little cells that come and lay down more bone. So more bone will be laid down because a little space has been made because of the skin pooling away from the shortness on the middle side and a bone, more bone will be laid down. Your body's like, let's pack this hole. We don't like this. Pack it with bone. And over time, the bone, you know, the fascia pulls away even more. More bone is laid down. That keeps going. And the process continues. Same kind of thing with what makes uh, bone spurs or heel spurs. Same kind of thing. The pulling away of the periosteum leaves a space. Your body lays down bones to fill the space. So that's kind of the um, generalizing the cause or the mechanism of what is happening in that situation. And actually, it kind of, um, you know, the reason for that, it reminds me of a story. I was, or not really a story, an anecdote. Um, but I planted a garden this year in my yard and I planted cherry tomatoes. And I did not buy one of those little gates or those little, I don't know, metal yeah, things. Yeah, the cage. Yeah, like a cage for your for your tomato plant. Yeah, I didn't I didn't buy a cage because I was just like, eh, you don't need one. Whatever. And my tomato plant is grown halfway on my porch, you know, yeah. out of the flower bed into the yard. It's like the biggest, yeah. widest thing I've ever seen. And I was watering it this morning and I was thinking, oh, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, when you put, if you want to contain something or you want to control the shape of something, you should put a cage on it. And if you want it to go grow all wild, then you should not put a cage on it. So um, that kind of reminded me of that, um, you know, the, the, we talked about the mechanism of what happens with the bunion. The cause is, you know, putting a cage on your foot. So your foot is not able to expand and move in the ways that it should. So there'll be shortness, there'll be compensations, there'll be pooling on things and making weird spaces that shouldn't be there because your foot is not able to widen and expand into all areas of the yard. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so one of the ways to combat bunions would be barefoot shoes and going barefoot? Um... Yes, and I think however much someone wants to fix the problem is how aggressive they can be with it. You know what I mean? So if you're just like, oh, you know, switch out my shoes, you know, go barefoot sometimes, nothing else in my life changes, you know, I don't know how successful that will be, right? But if you think about, you know, what we talked about earlier, like how long have you been making these shapes, maybe put that timeline on, you know, how long you're going to reverse the shapes. And um, 
I think very mindful uh, move, movement re-education and body work would also be really good to try to reverse some of those changes. Because it sounds like the bunions are more bone growing in, in that area. So how does exercises or body work remove that bone growth so a bunion goes down? Mm. Yeah, that's a good I don't know, question. I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if I'm like, my terms are correct. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And your body is constantly remodeling based on the inputs you're giving it. So we talked about, you know, how bunions are formed. You're putting your foot in this environment and it's making an input and it's making a result. So in order to stop that process, in order to reverse that process, you need to change all of the inputs you're giving to your foot. So just like your body makes osteoblasts that make bones, your body also makes osteoclasts that break down bones. So Oh, whoa, I did not know that. Okay, keep going, keep going. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. same thing with fascia. Your body has fibroblasts that lay down more fascia, and it has fibroclasts that break down. So in order to override that process that's happening, you need to send your body different signals so it does what you want it to, basically. I really, I really believe that you can change your body and make your body whatever you want to. You just need to, one, give your body the right raw material, right? The Weston A. Price Foundation is a good place to start for finding out what your body needs, what your fascia needs, what your bones need, all of that stuff. And two, have a very mindful and um, aware movement practice, trying to bring some of these things to life and re- model them. So that's, you know, with the bone remodeling um, thing, you know, what actually increases um, our bone density. A lot of people, at least with me lately, have been talking about bone density. How do we increase, you know, how do we make our bones strong? We drink raw milk, we do all this stuff. But even if you have all of this awesome nutrients floating around, if you're not sending your body the signal of where to put some of those nutrients, your body is not going to put it there, right? So if you are making sure that you're carrying weight, you're moving weight around, you're, um, you know, you're loading your bones, your body will know, oh, they're loading up their bones. We want to put more nutrients there and we want to grow them stronger. If you're not going to do that, then there's no, there's no um, impetus being put, right? There's no signal. So it's, you're not going to have it as effective as a rehab, I guess you can say, if you are not sending the right signals. Mm, that makes sense. So interesting. This stuff, I mean, it's, it's like a whole new world to me. I didn't know half of this and it just sounds, it, it's fascinating. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap it up by talking a little bit about MoveNat and can you share with us? So you talked a little bit about what it was at the beginning. Why is MoveNat better than traditional working out? Or so that's question number one. And then also, why should we incorporate it into our daily life? Yeah. So the amazing thing about MoveNat 
is MoveNet is a complete system of movement. And a lot of, a couple of the principles that I think are very important is adaptable. So the, the movement is very adaptable to any person at any level. You can make things very hard. You can make things very simple. Um, so it makes it very um, applicable to all levels of movement. Another thing about MoveNet is it is unspecialized, which that's what I think is the most important distinction between MoveNet and other movement modalities. So what I mean by that is MoveNet is, um, I guess I can say, I just want to use the word unspecialized, even though I just did, but a movement practice that is not unspecialized, a movement practice that is specialized would be something like baseball, right? Or something like dance or ballet. That movement is very, very specialized. You have to move your joints in very specific ways that's only relevant to that task, right? Mm -hmm. Ballet, baseball, sports, anything like that, any very specific movement. MoveNet is unspecialized that it, it provides your body with movement that is natural and normal to your the biomechanics of your body. So you um, can go into more specialized movement with a strong unspecialized movement background. So, you know, sitting on the floor, does your hips have the mobility? Do your joints have the mobility to get yourself down on the floor and get up from the floor? If they don't, then you probably shouldn't be doing something like golf, which is a very specific movement, right? So you want to um, have a lot of these unspecialized movements in your movement practice to nourish your body in a very human way, right? And you want to do movements that you would be doing in your everyday life, like sitting, standing, walking, breathing, all of those types of movements. So I think MoveNet does a really, really good job about that. And another thing that I love about MoveNet is it is just very practical. So you know, a lot of the times, especially I see people that just get up into their, you know, their 60s and 70s, maybe they used to be athletes, and they don't really care about that anymore, right? They want to be able to sit on the floor with their grandchildren, and they want to be able to pick up their, you know, their grandchildren and take care of them and run around with them, and they want to have the energy to do that kind of stuff. So that's a big part about um, MoveNet teaching practicality and teaching, you know, people, movements that people were always able to do. So our ancestors, I mean, there's so many historical pictures of people, even elderly people sitting around the campfire in a deep squat position. How many, how many people over the age of 50 do you know that can do that now, you know, mm -hmm. or even the age of 30, honestly? Yeah. Oh, wow. You're so right. Um, this is, you know, since I discovered structural elements and the move mat and all of that, it's almost been my mission to get my mom, uh, to become more mobile as she gets older, because I, I actually also see it. And I'm sure you might agree as a safety factor. If you have a 60 plus year old individual who has the ability to, get into a deep squat, to get up from the floor from a sitting position. Um, I think that it's going to be safer for them 
Whereas if they don't have that mobility, then they're more brittle. When they fall, they're not going to fall properly. It's more likely that they'll injure themselves versus if they're already mobile, then I believe the the um, opportunity to injure themselves could go down. I don't know. Totally. And I think that's definitely a part of it. And I think that to add to that, it's not just about, you know, not falling, right? It's not just about not getting hurt. It's about being vibrant and having vitality and moving with ease, you know, and actually, you know, Weston Price observed these people and he wrote about it in nutrition and physical degeneration. He wrote about how healthy and robust the people were. He wrote specifically about how, you know, in the Swiss, the the children were running through the streams of freezing water barefoot and bareheaded and he and his wife were in coats. And, you know, I think that that ability to be vibrant and that ability to move with ease is not just reserved for children. It is reserved for anyone and anyone can and should be able to move like that. So many people talk about, you know, I'm just getting old. This just happens. You know, I think we have this kind of sense that like when we get old, we're just not going to feel good. You know, how many, you know, things have you seen on the internet? Like, wait till you're, wait till you're in your thirties and you can't sleep on a couch. That's weird. You need to have your own pillow. Like all of this Mm -hmm. stuff, which is just crazy to me because I think that, you know, if we look ancestrally about how our ancestors were moving, they moved with ease and they moved with grace. And moving with efficiency and moving with elegance is a sign of fascial hydration and fascial health. So it's not just reserved for the the professional movers, right? The professional dancers move pretty, but no one else does. The professional, you know, basketball players, you know, you watch sports and, well, I don't, but people watch sports and they say, you know, this, you know, this athlete is moves amazing. I love watching him because they're moving with fascial efficiency and elegance. And I just, I don't think that's just reserved for the children or just reserved for the professionals. I think that can be for everyone and anyone at any age can achieve that type of vitality and movement ability. Wow. That's so cool. I completely agree. Um, and yeah, I think, um, okay. Is there anything else that you want to add or that you really want our listeners to know about fascia or feet or, or anything related to this subject? Oh goodness. I don't know. I feel like I can talk to you about this all day. So (laughs) (laughs) no, this is definitely a fun conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, just being aware of this and, um, I don't know. I always wonder, especially when listening to podcasts, like, how do I apply this to my life? Right. How do I, Mm. you know, how do I take something from this? And I think that, um, a really important thing that people can take from this, I mean, besides the little things that we've talked about throughout is your, um, your body is a whole system of, you know, communication and everything that's happening, every pain that you're experiencing, every, you know, ache and, 
you know, weirdness or just twitchness. I don't know. Whatever, whatever is going on is your body trying to communicate with you. So whether you are, you know, you have pain, whether you have itises, right, inflammation, whether you are, you know, worried about your children and how they're moving or your, you know, parents and how they're moving, you know, your body and their bodies, our bodies are always communicating with us and giving your body more movement, more variety of movement, changing the movement that you're doing every day, changing, never repeating a movement from day to day, just giving it as much hydration and as much information as possible will help you to communicate with your body better. So coming into contact with more surfaces, coming into contact with more, you know, areas, letting your feet walk on grass, letting your feet walk on sand, you know, moving in different environments, all of that will help build your communication system and help you know what you need for your body better. So. Mm. That's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I remember in one of our sessions, you asked me, how many different ways can you sit? And it was, it was, it felt like a trick question because I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like three ways. And and you were like, no, there's hundreds of different ways to sit. Um, And so that was, I thought that that was really fun. And uh, maybe we'll leave our listeners with that riddle. How many different ways can you sit in your own home? Um, But can you share with us where our listeners can connect with you? And also if there happens to be a, (coughs) oof, Um, If there happens to be some form of like website or database where people can find structural, integrative structural therapists, can you share something like that? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at my page, Dance Science Approved. And I post things about fascia and all the kinds of things we're talking about. I post and we'll be posting more. I also have a Patreon, also called Dance Science Approved, if you want to get more into the science and more into the anatomy behind some of these things. Um, and to if you are in the DFW area and would like to chat with us and see if we're a good fit for bodywork or MoveNet training, then you can check us out at our website, structuralelements.net, and read more about what we do and book or give us a call and we'll talk about options and get connected in that way. Perfect. And then if anyone is not in the Dallas area, do you know where I I feel like body workers, like what you do are so there's, there's very few of them. I don't know. Maybe there's more out there, but yeah. So for MoveNet, if you check out MoveNet.com, they have, an amazing website and amazing resources of natural movement. They even have, you know, workouts that they'll send to you every single uh, week. I think it is of um, move not things and move not moves to practice videos with them. They're really great. So check out move for movement and um, for body work. Yeah. There's really, um, th- like I said, there's structural integration as the umbrella and then there's different brands Right. And the mm. brand that I've trained trained under the most is um, with anatomy trains. So anatomytrains.com, you can check out um, 
practitioners in your area, but I, I mean, I, everyone is different, right? So, you know, not everyone kind of has the same philosophies, even though maybe, you know, does body work. I don't know. So I can't vouch for, um, all of those. But also, if you are at the Weston Price Conference, then um, Isaac is doing a talk on natural movement and fascia. So if you like this content or want to get um, more information about it, definitely come to this talk. It is Sunday morning, I believe. And also, um, we Isaac and Zach and I will be there. Also, we'll be teaching um, morning movement classes at the conference. So definitely come to those if you want, if you're wanting to experience all of this theoretical stuff I've been talking about this whole time. Yeah. Oh yeah. I am most definitely going to Isaac's talk. I'm so excited to hear his presentation and what he has to share about this. Um, because I mean, you feel like you feel so knowledgeable to me in this subject. And so I can only imagine how much deeper Isaac can get as your mentor. Um, but yeah. So thank you so much, you, everyone, for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was a little bit different than what we've done in the past, but really interesting stuff. And um, yeah, if you happen to like this particular episode, feel free to uh, leave a review. You can what is that called where you like click on the stars? I don't even know what that's called <laughs> technically. Rate it? Rate it? Yeah, that's it. There you go. You can rate it. <laughs> you can review it. Leave a comment. We love reading comments. And yeah, we will see you guys next time. Hopefully Corey will be at the next one. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. expressed in this episode are those of the guests. They do not reflect Corey and I's and Modern Ancestral Mama's personal views and opinions. We do not take responsibility for any ideas expressed during the podcast interview. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.